Welcome to the Angie Creates podcast. I'm your host Angie Wang. In this podcast, I interview curious humans on how they become the most alive versions of themselves through creative expressions like movement, art, and writing. 欢迎来到 Angie Creates， 我是你的主持人安吉。在这个节目呢，我喜欢和来宾们聊聊关于数位游牧、写作、艺术和身体训练的不同主题，探索如何活出最精彩的人生。My guest today is Kelly Davis. Kelly is from the U.S. and is currently based in Lisbon, Portugal. Before Lisbon, she spent the last ten years in Asia, specifically in, especially not specifically, especially in South Korea and Taiwan. Kelly is an independent learning coach, edtech educational technology consultant, and previous co-founder of an online self-directed edtech startup. Cubriel. She now works with creators and companies on educational strategy, education strategy, instructional course design, and project management. She also works with students and families from around the world. In addition to this, she writes two newsletters on Substack, Walking in Lisbon and Cali's newsletter. It's very fun. You guys should subscribe to them. She also hosts a morning walking group in Lisbon. I've known Kelly for over a year. As a Taiwanese who also later become a nomad, I've always been very curious about how she found her love in education, how she ended up in Taiwan, and made decisions on her expat nomad life. So today, I'm very excited to have this chance to talk about her life stories. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thanks, Angie. So good to connect. Okay, this is、so、good to see you. Very formal introduction, but we've actually chatted every two weeks, and it's super casual. So I'm actually feeling. A little bit nervous now. Okay, deep breath, Angie. You're fine. <sighs> okay, so just for the listeners. Uh huh. Why Why don't we start with your nomad life? Could you tell me about the time when you first left the U.S.? What were you thinking at that time? Like, do you do you think you would just leave for a little bit, or do you know it's gonna be a long trip away from home? Yeah, good question. I. Think what really gave me like the drop in this travel bug is when I first visited my cousin who was studying abroad. I was in my second year of college, and I got the opportunity to go to Europe. I went for two weeks, and I visited her in Ireland, and then went to a few other places. And it was like so eye-opening that she could experience. University outside of America with international students just for a few months, and I thought. Wait, I want to study abroad. So I went back home. I went to my next year of college, and then the next year I went to an intern. I did an internship at the study abroad office where I met all these international students, and I planned out how I would graduate college with my last semester abroad. And so I figured out, you know, this this plan while I was doing the internship, and then I went to Australia for six months to. Do an internship there as well. I did four internships in college, so it was all about getting that experience and getting credits to work as well.、Mm -hmm. And then after I was in Australia, I I stayed for another six months. So I I didn't go home after I finished college, and I just stayed there and worked and found out about teaching in Korea and that kind of you know continued on. And that's how I I taught in, in Korea afterwards.、Mm -hmm. You say. 
you you mentioned the word travel bug, and I found it very interesting because a lot of people they went they went abroad and then they're like, oh, it's fun, but stay in stay in the states is better. So, what in that if you can still recall, what in that experience make you feel I want I want to do the same thing too? Yeah, I think I realized that when I was in college, it was such a small place, and I I didn't really have much experience different than when I was in high school. I went to a college just you know a few hours away. It was in the middle of Pennsylvania, where Amish people live. <laughs> There were lots of cows and horses and buggies. Like it was, I, I never lived in the city. I had never left the U.S. at that point, mm-hmm. so um, it was really eye opening in that way, and more so that she was. You know, learning with people that were learning the same thing that were all different than her, right? So her roommate was from France and Switzerland, and they were all bringing together their different cultures of food and drink, and kind of having little celebrations like that. Just felt like you know a normal college life, and to me, it was like, wow, this this could be normal. You know, if if you leave the U.S. and figure out how to study abroad.、Uh-huh. I think I think it's so similar to me.、Um, you stay in Taiwan for a long time before, which we will we will touch on later. Ta- you know, Taiwan is such a homogeneous society. So the first time I studied in the states, I was blown away. I was living in an international dorm, so I was blown away by how many different accents, skin colors, like cultures, different jokes people play around, food people eat, and that just give me so. I feel like the possibility of life is opening. I had I don't have to be. Staying as the same personality, but that also gave me a lot of culture shock, and I I had a hard time adapting to life in Taiwan. When you first studied abroad in Australia and worked there for a little bit, do you find a counter culture shock when you come back to the states? Yeah, definitely. I think that was also one of the weirdest things, like that you don't, no one really tells you about. It was not really talked about. You know, especially like w- when that w- happened as well, and I had no idea that that would have happened.、Um, I came home and kind of got, I would say, a little bit less patient. I'm okay. I'm finally. I'm a normal, normally an impatient person, but like more impatient with things that you know, like you said, like there were jokes about Americans. Like for example, like I didn't know Americans were considered loud people until I moved to Australia. And then I was like, "Oh no, I don't want to be one of those like loud American students. I'll go over there and hang out with the international students instead of the group of American students." And I tried to kind of counteract that, and so that kind of became like, "Okay, I don't want to be the loud American. That's not what I want to be. That's not what I want to be known as." And I don't want think Americans should go out there being loud either. Uh huh. Um. So how how long before you go abroad again? Um, I was home for like four or five months. Um, then I figured out how to teach in Korea. Oh no! Then I went. Sorry. Then I went backpacking in Southeast Asia because、uh, I took a job in Taiwan at first, and then I canceled the contract because at that point teaching English was a little bit, you know, uncertain. Like. I'm gonna fly across the world on this contract that might not even be legit. So, I kind of scrapped that idea. I didn't have a good instinct about what I was signing up for, and I decided I would go to backpack in Southeast Asia before I moved to Asia. And I went there for six months, 
and backpacked all around. And I decided, yes, I want to come back and, and live here and teach here. Um, then I went home for another six months. So I was always kind of out and then back in for six months where I would come home and try to maybe integrate again, but really having a plan to leave was mm-hmm. really uh, the goal. Mm-hmm. You So you first arrived for a, in Asia for a longer term in, in South Korea as an English teacher, right? And you wrote before yes, that yeah. I had always wanted to be a teacher when you grew up. I, I found this very interesting. I think being a teacher is, if you ask a kid, what do you want in the future? They will either say, in Taiwan, they'll either say, I want to be a president or I want to be a teacher or a police because like that's the way you hold authority, right? But rarely do people grow up and still want to stay in education. So I... I'm curious what about education that inspire you and want to be a teacher? Yeah, I would say that definitely has changed. It's not normal. I I don't, you know, I don't work with young students right now, Mm -hmm. but I think if you have good teachers in your life or good people in your life, you aspire to be like them. So when I was young, I had a lot of, family friends and my cousin that, w- that and my aunt was a nurse and a school nurse and everyone was kind of in education in some part it felt like um my mom's social worker you know turned into working in a prison helping inmates so there's a lot of kind of supportive women and supportive roles around me uh, my cousin was a teacher and when i found you know her guidance and and as a, as a child, I always was playing teacher or playing school when I was a kid. So this was kind of like what we did on summer break. Okay. We would like make little notebooks and kind of like, um, my family friend that we would visit every summer, they had real school desks in the basement. So that was like the best thing where we could like play teacher with real desks and real notebooks. Yeah. So that was like, it was like playful and it was really fun. And and I have a a younger brother, he's nine years younger than me. So it kind of gave me that like teacher mom type of role from, from early on. And then I became a babysitter. I was always working with young, young people and and students from, from an early age. Uh Okay. So you, you have these, um, you have your family member that inspires you and you follow this passion and that brought you to Asia to for for teaching positions. What make you decide to stay in Taiwan? I think you you probably know a lot of the, this answer as well, but it's I would say a lot of it is the comfort and the people and the ease of lifestyle there. So, you know, the plan of course is usually to move for one year, you know, I was never planning to stay for for long and um, the plan was just to move for a year and to try something out. I moved from Korea to Taiwan uh, with a little stint in, in between traveling and, and home. But uh, that change was made because it was hot in Taiwan and, and very tropical. So Korea was really cold. After Australia, I was like, this is too cold. And then I found out, hey, you can teach English, but in a hot place, like on the beach. I was like, okay, let's go. Let's try it. So I went there alone as well. I went all of these places alone. And so when I moved to Taiwan, I realized 
that I could easily continue up kind of like teaching and education and become a certified teacher, work at international schools. Um, and that's kind of my, that was my plan. And that was what I did. That was my path for the first like four or five years that I lived there um, before I left and went to online teaching. Uh -huh. That's very interesting. Weather is also the top most concern when we when my husband and I first travel abroad, too, we basically look at nomads and see where is the warmest city, and then we're we're just gonna stay there. I think people doesn't realize people don't realize how much weather have an impact on their emotion and their decisions in life, like how they how they behave, where they what they wear, their their daily life patterns, and yeah. So is that so for for people who don't know much about Taiwan, um, I think most aspects actually stay in. The, the city in the north called Taipei, but Kelly's actually spent most of her time in Kaohsiung, which is a harbor city in the south. Is, is So is beach the reason why you stay in Kaohsiung? No, actually, it, it, I'll have to take that back because the beach, like you actually can't get on the beach. So it's kind of a little bit ironic, but um, it, no, in, the difference there is that Taipei is super rainy, right? Like we almost moved to Taipei, but it was like, no, it's almost like living in the UK mm -hmm. with the rain for <laughs> Seattle. Um, so we, we definitely didn't want to go there. But the accessibility from Kaohsiung to the southern, more southern places like the, the beaches in the south or the little islands off of the coast um, make it amazing. There's also an, a mountain that is one mountain in Kaohsiung called Monkey Mountain. And there's monkeys there. It's it's on a fishing village on the coastline. So the beach is accessible. Um, but but like you said, living in a hot place makes just for a healthier lifestyle, mm -hmm. I find. It makes for more life outdoors, life, you know, having summer year round really makes it for a, a different type of lifestyle that I was never, I, I didn't grow up like that, right? In, in Pennsylvania, where I'm from, there are four distinct seasons and it gets really cold and yeah. Mm -hmm. So I enjoyed that outside life a lot. Nice. So when in Kaohsiung, you spend a lot of time teaching both in schools and also as a tutor. I remember you wrote this article about how you were trying to hustle, hustle the whole day and feel drained at the end of the day. Then you start to think about the possibility of finding something that is maybe teaching related, but you don't know what it is. And later with serendipity, you co-founded your previous company, Kubrio. Could you tell us about a story? Sure. Yeah, I think it's uh, from a lot of experience. Like I said, doing internships and just kind of learning a lot about things I want to do for now and things that I don't want to do. So um, while I was in teaching and you know climbing my way, like I say, up the apple tree, kind of figuring out how I can get to the international schools and then get to the tier one international schools and then kind of getting a little bit of insight from some friends at those schools with those kind of dream jobs and thinking, is that really the lifestyle that I want? And so I kind of started to question where I was going with, with education and, and with classroom teaching. And I left the classroom in 2018 this was before COVID and I met my co-founder online because I was doing a series of kind of like, yes, man, like, okay, yeah, I'll take that online job. And I worked for every Chinese English teaching VIP kid type, you know, and VIP kid company that, that exists at the time. So 
Um, this kind of led to me working with a startup in, in Taipei remotely. And it was kind of my first remote job where they were asking me to build curriculum. And I was really passionate about helping online students learn about digital citizenship. So learning about how to use the internet safely. And I started building curriculum with them. And then I met my co-founder and we started with an online summit. So we were doing research because I had never explored this market of homeschooling, which is now unschooling, world schooling, alternative education space. So we interviewed people from around the world and kind of opened up the idea and resources about uh, what what people needed at that time. So this was, again, right before COVID in 2019 and um, opened it up with a book club. So the school started with a book club right after that summit, and we invited students to choose the book, you know, choose what they want to learn. And we added a few clubs where we had coding, science, and math. And we ran these few programs for six months and just kept testing what what students wanted more of. And so the program developed into, at one point, uh, the students could access 35 clubs a week in 24 hours around the clock from all time zones. And we had over 300 students. Um, and it really developed into a self-directed space where the students could fill up their schedules based on the things that they wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. And that was pre-COVID when you started. Yeah, so after COVID hit, then we opened up and it started to grow. Nice. Yeah. You're probably, when, when everyone's trying online education, you're probably like, we've been doing this for for quite a long time. Yeah, we've been here. But the, the hard thing was transitioning from traditional learning to self-directed learning because we weren't going to change that part. Okay, so for people like yeah. me who, who kind of, who kind of know the word self-directed, but doesn't really quite sure what self-directed learning. Could you explain what it is? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, sure. And it's been a while. So thank you. <laughs> um, I would say, and, and this is now me stepping outside of that, right? So I'm no longer affiliated with Kubro. I have left. Um, I'm no longer co-founder. So Self-directed is another type of box of an education boundary, right? So you have, you know, let's say to the Americans, we have the American system, common core, you know, these are the things you need to do to get out of school and graduate. In self-directed, the students choose what they want to learn when they want to learn it, right? So this is based on the student's choice. And that's really the also the principle from unschooling where the students choose what they want to learn when they want to learn. So for example, you wouldn't say to a first grade student at, you know, six, seven years old, that it's time to learn how to write the ABCs because you're seven years old. And this is what you do. You wait for the child to be interested, to choose the things that they want to learn. And, and when we really unbundle it, children are inherently curious and learning from the beginning, right? So your daughter is going to learn how to crawl. She's going to do that because she wants to, she needs to get to something, right? This is her instinct that it's going to guide her. And so when do we lose that instinct to learn and that desire to learn? It's often said that school can take this out of us, right? So They say that, you know, we stop asking questions around our teen ears. We, we really change at, at this time. And 
we we based a lot of this off of Sir Ken Robinson. He's a great education model from coming from the UK. And um, he talks about how schools kill creativity. And so self-directed really enables the students to choose the things they want to learn and to design their li- <clears throat> design their lives basically as they want to use their own freedom. So there is no boundary of, you know, this eight hour day should be spent like this. They have freedom to choose. And in its truest form, the students have the autonomy to do that. Nice. Um, especially in, in, in education system like Taiwan, it's not eight hour day. It's maybe a 16 hour day where you're forced to stay in a tiny, <laughs> tiny chair, tiny table and just not only not only learn what a curriculum give you, but learn specifically for what a test want from you. And so like, I remember I remember um in in the citizen citizenship course, like how to be a good citizen course, there will be question like what defines a um what defines a good family? Does the family provide A happiness happiness, B stability, C nourishment, and just like and out of this, out of these very similar choices, you gotta remember that one specific choice. And I, I, I think it's very interesting when now we're all in a creator world. Sometimes we're asking other creators, "When do you find your creativity?" And they're like, "Oh, I was very creative when, like, when I was a kid, but then, but then, um, I was forced to choose a major in college, and that killed my creativity or stuff like that." But me growing up in Taiwan, I never remember I have any creativity going up. I was never given a choice. I was just following the path. I'm very good at following the path. But that's another story. So you you left Taiwan when you were building Kubriel. What and that at that time you already stayed in Taiwan for eight eight years? Seven or eight years? Mm-hmm. Almost almost seven, yeah. What yeah. What made you decided to leave Taiwan? Before I answer that, actually, I want to talk about the creativity thing for sure. a second. Because when we look at like the differences between education between the East and the West, I think that's a perfect example. And and like one small anecdote, like if you go to a classroom, like a first grade classroom in Taiwan, and you give students a blank sheet of paper and tell them to draw something, what will they, they will say, what do you want me to draw? And you say, just draw something. It's really hard on a white piece of paper. And even for writers, right? We hear this as writers, like don't write for a blank page. But if you're given a pencil and you're seven and you can't, you're unsure what to draw because the teacher hasn't said it, 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 it was a practice that many of us did. And, and it was always, you know, in this way, trying to help kids think beyond what the instructions are. But unfortunately, that's a lot of what the requirements, that's what the school, the curricula, the boxes you have to check, you know, this is what, this is what's required of a teacher essentially to do a good job. So just that small anecdote there of like, yeah, just drawing, creating, just, just constantly creating, I think is, is really hard. Um, And I find that as an adult now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what? Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Do you so all these um the stuff that you just share, do you know these when you started Kubrio? Or when you I, I guess my question is 
Are there things that are different than what you expected before you started to do self-directed education for kids? I think it, it, many things surprised me. Yes, I guess what I found in that transition was that I first needed to learn how to be self-directed because. Most adults aren't self-directed. They go to a job at a certain time, and people tell them what to do, and they get told them what to do after that. And then they told good job, and then they're told to go home. Right, and it's really hard for them to do much beyond that. Right, and that that was how I was raised in public school. My parents were corporate. You know, like that's that was my upbringing as well. And so I didn't have that entrepreneurial artist spirit、um, in me, and and it felt like. Maybe that wasn't something that I could have done, you know. Maybe that just wasn't for me. And so when I was learning about self-directed learning, I took this online course called "Learning How to Learn" on Coursera. It's the most taken, completed online course. It's the number one online course, and I highly recommend it. I'm working on it with teens right now. There's a teenage version, and this really helped me to understand like how I can have a growth mindset. And also be a self-directed adult and use my interests to lead me、mm-hmm. in that way. So,、um, yeah. And then I guess to answer your other question about why I left Taiwan, it was really to keep growing, right? I, I it's kind of a in a growth mindset. Like, what can I do more in in Taiwan? And I feel being there was was really helpful because we had a. Asia demographic in the school. There were classes in all time zones, so helping teachers from the West communicate with parents and students from the East. It was very helpful to have that background. And then just leaving Taiwan was really the geographic reason need to try something new, just have a new challenge, just try. You know, ten years is a long time in a place, and just wanted to get out of Asia and yeah, try something. In in Europe and Portugal was the place to come、mm-hmm. for now. <laughs> That's um, I it might be sorry like sorry for the audience that I'm jumping around different topics now. I was like I want to do it chronologically <laughs> so it makes more sense, but then creativity is also very interesting. We're just going with the flow here. So it might be a little bit long time ago. It's last year that you moved to Portugal. I think that moving away from a country that you stay for a long time is a hard decision. Decision like now you look back, you can tell me like, oh, like it's time to leave. But I think that when the when the idea first settled in、um, of leaving a country, it could be a little bit scary. So I, I feel like it might be. I, I wonder if it's a a process of like. Coming out with this idea and rejecting it, and then think about it again, and gradually accept it. What, what was the process like for you? That's a great question, and I think it's also good for people who are deciding these things as well. Like, how do I leave? How do I know when to leave?、Um, and for a job, a house, a you know, location, right? It could be applied to anything, and. Unfortunately, we tried to move before, so we had this decision like well before. Like we knew we were ready to leave, probably after five years. And my partner and I met there. He's from Canada, so we were like, "Yeah, let's leave." And we tried to move to Vietnam because we had a lot of friends from Taiwan moving to Vietnam. Another hot, warm, beautiful, delicious food. 
place to teach English and, and to keep living that lifestyle. Um, but then COVID hit and that, that really changed things for us. We got stuck in Taiwan for another three years. So after the three years, it was like, yeah, we're really ready to leave. You know, it kind of like was a no brainer, you know, it was just like, let's get out of here. And the challenge was to come to Portugal to get the visa and everything. But we left last year to figure out if, if Portugal was, was great. And as we thought, um, and at first I wouldn't been able to say, Oh, what do you miss about Taiwan? Oh, nothing. You know, it's, it's nice to leave. But I think now a, a year out, out of there, it's, it's a lot of comfort. I think in Taiwan, you know, that, um, is not something that can be replaced and it could be by any place, but I think specifically there, you know, you have a, a solid group of friends and a lifestyle, but even little things like the drink shops, for example, like the tea shops, like I don't know anywhere in the world where it has so many delicious cold drinks at every street corner. And, and how are people surviving with so much thirst, you know, without <laughs> those? Like, that's my main question. So we miss like tea shops, you know, it's mango season right now. All of our friends are posting tons of mangoes. So it starts, you know, a year later, it's like, okay, yeah, I miss little, little parts, but that, you know, I went back to visit Korea after I left there and, and I'm sure I will visit Taiwan one day. Uh -huh. What what was it like first settling, settling down in Portugal? It was a really big, I mean, talk about culture shock. Like that was a really big culture shock, I think, for lifestyle because it, for some reason, we just anticipated it to be much harder in the way of maybe it would be similar to a, the U.S. that that we were from from North America. You know, like um, I, I don't know. That's a good question. Like something specific, maybe. You know, for example, like we had basically given up on a lot of like the bread in Taiwan. So coming here, it was like okay. The food, the, the the food and the options and the variety and and it's very fresh and local and that I think was a big shock. So we started cooking a lot, you know, a lot more. It, it kind of changes the lifestyle. Where in Taiwan, you're you don't even own a pan to cook something because you can easily eat out all the time, and that's just the way of life. Um, so those those things, I think, conveniences like stores close at nine p.m. Like they, stores close in general, I think is was a shock. Um, so you just have to plan a little bit around that. I think as far as the visas concerned, it was a similar process to when I had the gold card in Taiwan. So it is quite complex um, to get there through that, similar to Portugal. But yeah, I would say it, it's a lot of differences, but it's a lot of good. So we're really, really happy here, and it was definitely the right move. Mm -hmm. I I was very shocked when I arrived in Lisbon last year too. I did my baby moon in Lisbon for a month. That that might be too short to to decide what the culture means to me. But for my first for that one month, I actually feel like it's kind of like Taiwan. I was I was surprised how similar Lisbon is to Taiwan in terms of like seafood is so available and the 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 taste of cooking is very similar. Um, I didn't talk to a lot of locals, so. I wasn't. I'm still not sure if this is the right judgment, but I remember I was connecting with this one person from Twitter, and then we were talking about 
our fear of speaking English or creating English. And then he said he just、uh, um for audiences my episode with Zhao Matheus. He said that when he switched from creating Portugal to creating English, he didn't tell any of the Portuguese friend because he knows. That the Portuguese friends would judge him. Oh, who do you think you are? You think you're better just because you write in English? So those type of judgment or like he um told to be humble, be kind in the public, but like secretly judging other people in the back. I was like, man, this is like Taiwan in in Europe. And also the funny thing is in Taiwan actually has another Portuguese name for Mosa. And I remember I I I, I went visiting um. Is a portal that、yeah, the city portal, and I was living on a street called Formosa. I was like, okay, I'm having deja vu right now. I have no clue what's going on. I feel like I'm actually in Taiwan, but not in Taiwan. That is so funny. Yeah, I was gonna have lunch at a place called Formosa last week, but it was closed because <laughs> it's a holiday. But there, yeah, I mean, there's so many weird, like historic, it, like historic connections that I wasn't aware of when we chose Portugal, of course,、um, but. We we see that a lot too, and I joked that Taiwan is the port is the no sorry Portugal is the Taiwan of Europe, and people said, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Well, it's kind of the same shape, a little bit.、Uh, it's warm. It's you know comparable to the other side. It has like a similar cost of li- like a lower cost of living.、Um, you know, lots of good things to to compare it to Taiwan. I think the people are also really friendly." And that, to me,、uh, comes I think a lot from the culture and the climate.、Um, so, like you said, like going through hardships, coming through a lot of pain and adversity, you know, from history. Like reading some of the history books now, and and guiding this walking group, kind of going around and seeing what's happening in Lisbon, and and it's in Asia. I felt this a lot, especially you know in Korea, Tokyo, Taipei, where you see the old and the new, like. On top of each other, almost like literally, the the high rises are next to the shacks and the temples and the shanties, and it's like everyone is just driving in the same street.、Um, that's also in in Lisbon and in Portugal, and I think recently they're having quite of a housing crisis and some of this the wage problems as well. And、um, hopefully in Taiwan they would see a change and an uprise from that as well. It's a lot of a lot of things to learn, a lot of culture to learn, but I, I love it so far.、Mm-hmm. Nice. So、um, I want to go take a deep dive into into our experiences living in the U.S. and versus around the world. So I'm curious: Do you still think you're American after living outside the states for so long? Well, it's very interesting. My parents are leaving my home today, like our our childhood home, and I'm now a Florida resident, I guess,、uh, as of last year.、Um, and there are parts of me that still feel American, like that's my connection to my family. My family is in America, and and they are American.、Um, But the association that I feel, I think it gets further away.、Um, in terms of you know connecting with groups of Americans in places like Portugal or Taiwan, you know, are we relating more to each other outside or the people inside? And I think in an international community, that's where I see myself most is. 
people who have experiences in many different places. So it becomes less about, hey, where are you from? Mm -hmm. And more about, hey, what are you interested in? Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's have a coffee and just chat about things that are important to us. I I resonated with that so much. I remember when I first studied in the States, when I was in Taiwan, I never thought about myself as a Taiwanese because, I mean, I'm like fish in the water. I just, like, this is who I am. Like, why do I have to defend myself if I'm Taiwanese or not? Because everyone else next to me is our Taiwanese. But then when I'm in the States, I first time realized, holy shit, like, I'm, I actually am from Taiwan. I'm Taiwanese. And I started to have this identity crisis. Like, who am I? Like, uh, like that my Taiwanese identity is over my my Usho Wang identity and my female identity, blah, blah, blah. It's just like a lot of a lot of shocks. And going back to Taiwan, I after first study in the States, uh, by the way, I went to a very party school, ASU. And so that was like the extreme mm -hmm. culture away from Taiwan. And so going back to Taiwan, I was like, I don't feel like I'm Taiwanese, that Taiwanese anymore. I wanted to dress more like Americans and I wanted to like, I wanted to hug people. I wanted to like, when I smile, I want to have my teeth out. That's like the typical American smile. I want to show that I'm different than who I was before. And I think I went through a time where I reject of being a Taiwanese. And then going back to the States to study grad school again. And then work for a little bit and went back to Taiwan to work. And now moving back to the States again. In between, we also travel nomadically for a while. And now when I, people ask me where I'm from, I, still, I will still say I'm from Taiwan, but I agree with you. I don't feel like Taiwan defined my whole identity anymore. It's more about like, what is, where, where does my curiosity go to? What do I like? Um, who am I really am? And I really love the fact of being a nomad or being an expat in other country, especially being a nomad where you have this very fluid identity. You're constantly changing the conception of who you are, what you should behave, what you should conform to. It gives you such a huge freedom of rede redefining and unlearning who you are over and over again. Yeah, I, I will respond to that. Like, I think the the unlearning part is so deep. And I think in any conversation that I'm having these days, is it's a lot about the unlearning. I'm talking to teachers who are leaving the classroom and talking to teenagers who are transitioning from public school to self-directed. Um, and it is a lot of the unlearning, right? And it's it's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not unlearning my Americanism to, to shed that, you know, and like chuck my passport in the trash when I get my EU on, like, it's more just about like recentering into my own true self. And I think that if I can get a little bit clearer each day, each conversation, each new culture and country that I connect with, that will help me just, you know, as a person. And it's less about the place that I identify with. And it's more about like the values that I identify with as, as a person. So um, I think you know, the identity crisis is real. It's really hard when you're 20 something and going through it and 30 and however old you are, and you're going through this confusion of, of it. And I think if we can just define like the, the true core center of what we want to be, then that will help us guide a little bit clearer. So what did you believe to be yourself? Um, let me rephrase this question. What do you have to unlearn about yourself? 
I think I had to, I, I, it's different now. I would say, you know, back then when I first left, I had to unlearn that I didn't have to do the things that I thought I had to do, like the American dream, you know, that's in its truest form, like get the mortgage. Okay. You have to go to college, right? Okay. I did that. I have to go to college. Okay. You have to get the job. Like, well, I don't know if I want to get the job right away. Like, are you sure? Like, well, you have to. And and then if you get the job, then you have to get the mortgage and you have to buy the house, you know, like, it's like, you have to do these things. And I think you undo like the have tos and like the like, okay, I'll just do what I need to do right now. Because this is like, what I want to do. This is this is what I've chosen to do at this time. And it empowers the choice that you make. So those choices, like if you get better at making decisions and making choices about where you're going to live and what you're going to eat for breakfast, it's going to happen better at work and in your relationships. And it just becomes this iterative process where you make better decisions. And maybe we had to unlearn a lot of the people made decisions for us, right? Like that's not, not what we want. Um, and I refer a lot to like the work of the minimalists. I read a lot of their content while I was transitioning out of the classroom. And that was kind of how I used that guide, you know, and, and like Paul's book, Pathless Path, it's like the community that the people that are there to support you and, and how do you find your way, you know, you lean on others and, and just connect with people who are one or two steps ahead of you and know that you're not alone in this. So that's been the best part. Mm -hmm. When uh, we, we were so so Kelly's also a mentor of Rite of Passage. Um, for those who have listened to the podcast before, yeah, hey. Rite of Passage is an online course of online course and community on based on writing, but not really just about writing. It's basically through writing, rediscover who you are and build your your presence on the internet and in the world about who you are. And Kelly shared many like fascinating exercises about exploring your values or like um, creative ideas. So, could you could you share with us some exercise that you do to clear to like maybe like do reviews on your your life um, for the past few months, few weeks, few years, or exercise to clarify your values? Ooh, yeah, good question. Um, one of the I, I will talk a little bit about the mentoring in in rite of passage. One of the most interesting things that I experimented it's all experiments right and one thing i tried last cohort was to do some visualization practices and it sounds very woo woo and like no there's no like smoke and mirrors it's just like close your eyes and think about the person that you're writing for and you know we we, we would do visualization for the, the people who are reading your stuff for the shame that you feel you know that the inner talk that's happening like all of those mindset shifts um, that that kind of need to happen. Um, just today, I met with a with a teacher, and we're working on the values practice. And one of the things that we can do from a value of health, for example, that's an example that is easiest for me. This was my easiest value to figure out and to kind of solidify. And this is my foundation. So I wake up, have a good morning routine. You know, start my day with whatever it, the, those things are in my morning routine that I have set up to make me feel like I have successfully done what I need to do for me, right? So health is finished, right? So, or maybe I'm eating healthy in the day and, and these goals continue. So 
how can we define the goals that are underneath of that value? So maybe I'm eating healthy and I, I want to walk 10,000 steps a day and I want to, you know, run a little bit or get a workout in four days a week at the gym. But how do those values fit together? And so then we look at like a weekly calendar. And from that, I kind of color code each value into what it looks like in my week. And so this is like markers and paper, you know, it's literally sitting at the table and just color coding like, okay, I'm pink and I want to focus on me in the morning. And then maybe I put some me time in the afternoon and especially on Fridays when the week is over, you know, like then I can feel like I'm planning ahead. And I know that, you know, all these things are settled. Like the values are all going to be reached by the end of the week. I'm going to have my time balanced. And then there is also that flexible time to, to see where other things can fit in. Right. So um, I use the same practice with mentoring students who are graduating university and going to start their first jobs. And so I just recommend, you know, staying true to the values that, and the, person you want to become will help you align to the work and the job that you want to get if, if that's what you're doing too. Mm-hmm. Color coding is such a smart idea. I remember sharing this before, but yeah, the, right now my calendar is just the meetings that I cannot miss. The meeting I can miss, the different type of, these are the two type of colors. <laughs> but yes. It, red and uh-huh, more red. Uh-huh. Yeah, I... <laughs> I think value evaluation exercise is such a important thing for for us as especially as a creator because we have such a huge freedom of choosing what we want to do every day. And sometimes I I I mean for just speaking for myself, I did a lot of things that I should do instead of I want to do or that things that are super logistic but not really co- correlated with my values and yeah, I need to do more of that. I think it is this is a good um uh, transition into your current learning coach project or learn being a learning coach. Let's put it this way. So, yeah. um, after spending many years um, on Cooperios and now being an independent learning coach, what is the transition like? I mean, this transition also overlap with you moving from Taiwan to Portugal, but now you're moving. Um, you are working with families and students from around the world. What, what is the coaching like and how does it impact your lifestyle? I would say from the experience at Cubrio, when we unbundled the school and the, the role of a teacher and, and mentors, we created two roles for a teacher. One was called learning coach and one was called facilitator. And so a learning coach, what I now do with students is to help them on executive functioning skills and motivation and mentoring. So we get through goals that they have set up for the month, just like in a values practice, we take it, we don't do values yet. One day we will, but we do the calendar part where we set up the goals. And if the student is self-directed, that means they don't go to school. So they have a full eight hours. Well, what is it that you want to do with your day? Johnny, you know, so Johnny tells me what he wants to do. And we, we set up the plan for him. Um, He goes on his week, and he does the things and we meet on Friday, we talk about what worked, and what didn't work, and how realistic that goal was, and what do we need to change for next week. And then gradually, we add a second goal, right? So the student that I just started with, we're on goal two. So he's doing 20 minutes of math and 
or two lessons of math and 20 minutes of YouTube uh, research, right? So he's learning how to make a YouTube channel on Skillshare. And so he's taking these projects upon himself to do his own thing. This is in its best self-directed way. I've been with him since he was, you know, since he was 10, we've known each other and he's been on this self-directed journey, but it looks very, very different for students who are leaving public school, right? If I were to do the same learning coach with an adult, like you or me, for example, it would be very different because we're not used to that self-directed practice, if depending on you know the environment we come from. So how can we help people to work on motivation? And out of 100 teenagers that were polled, 89% said they want to work on motivation skills. So the teens are asking for help with motivation. And so it feels like if I'm not doing that work, they're not getting that help. And so I feel like very driven to to do this, right? So it was basically like requests from parents, can you help us? Um, and the Monday, Friday meeting is there to kind of bookend the weeks, but we have asynchronous tech support. And so I've set up recently, I'm very excited about this, but an automated bot where I check in every day and they send me their goals. And so we check in asynchronously. Um, and so we kind of have this support, WhatsApp support. It's part of the package and you can turn that on or off. Like, interestingly enough, the teen girls, yes, let's text and boys. Nope. They don't, they just want to like see me Monday and Friday. So whatever the students need, I try to personalize it around, you know, if they're one student will be moving to Portugal. So it's kind of a study abroad support at first and then transition to university, um, and really just helping students in transition and helping them kind of get back on track, right? And I tell the parents that basically I will take the nagging from you. So let me check in and see, talk about the progress and make those progress points and check-ins, share the summary with the parents, but uh, let the parents go back to doing the fun parenting, hopefully less nagging, right? So it's not, what did you do today? Are you finished that? But more about like, hey, I saw on your calendar, you're working on these goals. We have shared documents and everything is kind of connected. So we we work as a team, really. And I, I emphasize this team so that the parents, I, I'm not on the other side of the screen, right? So how can the parents do the support when I'm not there as well? Mm -hmm. How how So you're alive right now. How is it different from being a co-founder of a startup? Um, I have a life. That's one. <laughs> I, I guess, no. Um, I was pretty good about my boundaries and my balance in that role as well, you know, like weekends and things. But um, I would say it's a lot of undoing. It's been a long six months of undoing. And I, in for, for four and a half years, I was I was in that environment with those people. And it was a really good learning experience, but it, I recognize there's a lot of undoing that needs to happen and uh, not just from, from everything. Right. So I think that's been a process and just kind of writing and creating and going through it and just bringing that support to, to teens and to, to kids has been very valuable and rewarding. And then just finding people, creators and companies that I can create with. It's been really rewarding too. What, what are the undoings that you you did, you have done? Um, I would say, yeah, like 
the education side for me feels uh, maybe I was a little bit unsure about my educational values. And so we can think about personal values as these, I call them foundational values, but what are our professional values, right? So as a teacher, we have educational values and, you know, how can we attract the right people that we're aligned with when we go into those spaces? So, um, you know, I, I do not believe self-directed education is for everyone. I don't think that it is a one size fits all. I don't think any education solution is a one size fits all. Um, and so I really was challenged on that for a long time. Um, it's also in my belief that education and technology can be in the same place, but they have to support one another and replacing relationships with technology, like the teacher to student relationship can be done with technology if it is used appropriately and with the relationships on like the heart of the child in mind. Um, we don't want to go automating every teacher out there. You know, people thrive on connection just like you and me. And we thrive in our communities as well. Like that's what students need more. And so when at the end of, of my time in Cabrillo, the decision was to remove any community connection, any personal onboarding, anything that was a person to connect. And that was really the, the reason where I decided that my my heart center is is at the relationships of the students and and being a learning coach has really shown me that that is still what's really important to me. Mm. Is there are there any traits of the parents or the students that will lead to more successful self-directed learning? Ooh, good question. Wait, am I being yes. am I being um fixed mindset now? <laughs> no. No. No, that that's a good question because it shows like it it and and that would be another surprising thing too that I would say like these things are possible outside of any classroom wall. Like let me back up a second. Learning happens outside of a classroom, right? So that is a lot of the undoing from school, from our upbringing that we think that if you want to learn something, you're in a chair in a room and there's a teacher and there's a book and, you know, it's very structured and there's this agenda, but it doesn't happen when you're, you know, running to the store and getting your 10 cent candy, when you communicate with the cashier and get your change and you do a little bit of math and you have a conversation with an adult. Like once you break down the walls of learning and realize that it happens everywhere, that I think is a really profound difference that I think um, can enable a growth mindset, right? So um, I guess the simplest way to answer that question would just be to continue growing and learning, right? It's like self-development. And that's like, not just you as a person, but as a family. So when we think about values, you have individual values, but you would also have a set of family values. And so you would recheck, you know, refresh on those constantly that, you know, everyone is aligned and that the values of the individual are also in, in center with, with the family values. Um, and learning will happen from this self-development and th this growth period, right? I think in Cubrio, we worked a lot of uh, forward-thinking families. So a lot of families came from Bitcoin and from Twitter, for example, and it was like the demographic of entrepreneurship, right? So I would imagine, you know, on the other side of the screen that 
when the students go to class, the parents go to the meeting and then they have lunch in the kitchen together and they talk about their mornings because it's like we are entrepreneurs and our days are arranged by our own self-learning and maybe some meetings. And that's how a child's day should would be structured as well. So they would go to some classes and they would do some self-directed learning on their own and maybe hopefully lot take lots of breaks and go play and work on that health and development in so many ways. So um, I would just say enabling the lifestyle. And, and I think that's what you're already doing, but the lifestyle is, is there to just keep going as you are um, and to just keep growing together. Mm-hmm. Man, I, so my, my kid is three months old and I felt before, before she was born, I, Like I know like Kelly, Karina, a lot of people who are in Rite of Passage working on untraditional education. I was like, okay, one day I will have to start learning about what those are. And now I'm in it. I'm now like I'm in like maybe like parents group and I hear other parents signing up, already sent out their kids for daycare or like preschool. And I think about their college and stuff. And I was like, I'm not sure if I... Okay, I, I'm pretty. I'm 100 sure that I'm very. I will be very happy if if my kid doesn't go the traditional route. But I'm also unsure what would be the success metrics for her anymore because I don't even know what's the success successful metric for me now as an adult. I we don't we don't own a house. We don't own a car. We don't we don't go. We don't have uh, fancy corporate corporate jobs. And we're constantly thinking, like, are we living a successful day, or are we living, are we living a successful life, or maybe success is not even the word that we are chasing for now. So if I can figure out what is a life that is worth living for me, how can I figure out that for my kid? And when my kid is yeah. learning about herself and learning about different type of stuff, how do I define success for her? And in terms of this, like, what, what, what's your perspective on this? Yeah, yeah, this is a this is a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because we had, I mean, in the beginning of Kubra, we brought in so many families and parents that were in this much, much longer than me, and where I was able to learn from them. And so, there are a lot of courses out there to help parents learn how to homeschool their kids. Right, that's kind of the general. Thing, the most asked question, the highest Google search is what's the curriculum that I'm going to buy, right? So in a traditional way, you would imagine you would take the box set that they do at school and you sit at the kitchen table and you're the teacher to the child. And, you know, it's kind of in the structured way. But um, when we break it down and we think about how do we transition into self-directed you know, way of life, I think the measurement of success is usually the number one thing that parents need to work on first. And this is coming from like, these women who have created communities and courses for parents, and it always comes back to this. And so they created a course only on how do you measure your child's success? And so the question is, well, of course, all parents want their children to be happy. But the measurement of success is also independence right so you're happy or you're a happy playful child and then at one point you are an independent child so it's the measurement of success for your for you and and your partner and your family to decide 
how that independence happens, right? How that happiness leads to independence. So when I look at work with these students, they have the full day to figure out what they want to do. It doesn't always mean that they're happy from that, but they have gained that independence, like they have control. And so when I work with students in transition who are well beyond 10 or 15 years old, it's so much harder to gear, to grasp that control in, in happiness, right? It's fearful. That de-schooling period can be really tough. You know, how do I undo all of those those systems at play? So if you don't put her in a system, she won't know what she needs to undo, right? And her independence will be chosen by her because she's in control, right? And I think it goes back to that, like, what are the decisions I make and what are the, the experiences I have to make better decisions? Mm-hmm. Nice. I hope that answered your question. Yeah. In a roundabout way. <laughs> you help kids and you help parents in terms of your own life. Like, How do you navigate uncertainties in your life and how do you define that you're li- living a life that is worth living? Ooh, the biggest question. I would say it's a lot of my value practice is, is what I was just say, explaining to this teacher this morning, like when it's color coded and I can see that there's a balance between all of the values in the week. It makes me feel very content and I'm a planner. I like planning. So every Sunday I sit down with my highlighters and colors and make sure my, my schedule is there. Right. And it's like, what is off balance and try to try to have like a mindful approach to that. Uh, that's probably more short term. I would say long term. I don't know. Moving to Portugal was like, oh yeah, I moved a bunch of times. I moved to Australia, did this all alone, and now I have a partner, and it's gonna be great, you know. And it's different when you're thirty something than when you're twenty something. Like I'm not going to the bar and you know having that camaraderie. Like it's very different. Um, I think the transition was different than I expected and just unpredictable. So sometimes you just have to go with the uncertainty that, you know, the short-term plan is all I can do right now. Maybe all I can do is plan a walk every morning and do some of the work that I have to do in the day and, and, you know, just have enough to put the food on the table and pay rent and get the visa, you know, and then worry about figuring out the rest and, and the growth period after things settle down. So Mm-hmm. When you that's where I'm when at. you made an important yeah. decision in your life, is there any principle that guides you in making a decision? Well, probably my gut instinct. I think it's like it's very strong, and it always tells me what what I need to do. Maybe not strong enough to tell me when. Like that's probably like you know, maybe do things earlier or, or cut them off sooner or, you know, things like that. But um, I trust my gut instinct a lot in terms of these decisions. And I think I am a planner and I do a lot of research. And so I, I knew, you know, as much as I could about Korea before I flew there and, and you know, moved there and without knowing anyone. That was a really big decision to move there for a year. Um in a non-English speaking place, for example. So every, every time I do it, I, you know, you get a little bit stronger and you, you 
make some mistakes and then you learn from them and keep growing. Yeah. Um, this might be a weird question, but how do you follow your gut instincts? Um, I'm asking this because I'm super bad at it. Sometimes I know like, no, Angie, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it. And then I did. And I was like, you did it to yourself again. What are you thinking? I'm just really bad at following my yeah. gut instinct. Do you have like exercise or like, what do you tell yourself or how, how did you do it? I know it sounds really weird. And the only reason I said it is because, um, okay, last week I met, I met co-working with a friend and she told me that she's a human design oh, reader, uh-huh. something, human uh-huh. design, you know uh-huh. this, you know, human design. And she's like, trying, you know, we had met each other for five minutes, basically. And then she's like, um, was asking me some questions. And then she's like, I'll do your reading for you. And I was like, okay, sure. And like, I had no idea my life was about to change. And basically, she told me like, my gut instinct is so strong, and I should always follow it. And she's like, do you have this? First thing she said was, are you a leader? And I was like, you don't know anything about me. Yes. How do you how do you know this? It was like a little bit creepy, you know, giving her my birthday and the day, the time I was born, she could like tell that I was 9% of people, you know, having these traits and just started unveiling all of these things that were true about me. And one of those was my gut instinct. And I said, yeah, I do have a really strong gut instinct. And I said, someone even pointed it out to me one time, which was a little bit spooky. Um, I was at I was at my brother's wedding and he, the woman he was marrying is my sister-in-law here. Her mother was there. and was like, I just saw you do something. You look like you're really prepared for things. Like people have always called me a girl scout. Like I'm always prepared with like tissues and I don't know, safety pins in my purse, for example, like that's just me. And I think when she pointed that out to me, I was really caught off guard. And I was like, she's like, yeah, you just knew that she needed that next. And you were there. And I said, yeah, but, how did you notice that? And she said, I think, you know, you're, you're going to have like trust your instinct, you know, kind of thing, like from like an older woman who's saying this to me. And so I, I, I always remember that story as kind of like, if, if people are noticing things, I think it's interesting that maybe I should learn about those things about me, you know, like whatever I can to, to learn deeper about myself. Um, so yeah, it was a really interesting concept. So then when she told me last week, yeah, you have a really strong gut instinct. And I was like, yeah, I do. I'm just going to keep following it. Um, And it was from that conversation too, where she said, she said, yeah, don't go look for jobs. Just keep doing your own thing. And I was like, okay, I'm done. I will not go on LinkedIn anymore. (laughs) And I haven't since. Nice. (laughs) I thought you'd like that part. Nice. (laughs) It is so interesting. Um, So, I the first time I learned about human design, it blew me away. Like suddenly, all like my whole life flashed through my head, and everything I made makes so much sense after the person told me what my type is and like wh- what what who I am according to the type. And so I told Paul about it, and Paul never believed in stuff like this. So she was very he was very pissed. And later, I hired a a person to do like a four hour reading for me. He was like getting even more pissed off like me getting into so deep into it until last week we have a meetup of create like a creators meetup and one of the creators also happened to be doing human design reading and then so he told he told paul about who he is and then he was blown away and then he started to 
to really cling on to his identity. Like, I'm a projector. And this is what I do. And I was like, I told you this many years ago and you wouldn't believe me. <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah, check out the video. It's a oh very good God. way of like, I, I don't, I, has, I still have no clue how can it be so correct in so many details. But yeah, check out human design if you're interesting. And so thank you so much for this conversation. It's, I, I'm, so, I'm so grateful that I get a chance to learn so much about you, like get, get to know you deeper. What um, for our closing question, I want to ask you, what are you excited about your life the most right now? I think it's just the freedom to keep creating and exploring and and just to know that it will it will be okay. It will figure itself out, you know? Like I feel like I have so much to give. I, I say this like I write this in my journal, like I have so much love Aww. to give and I just wanna help teachers and students and parents and like make education not like a painful decision for people because it's painful for teachers, parents, students, like we're all in it, you know, and that's just kind of where I'm at right now. It's just like, how can I help? Nice. You you are, you're a person that have a lot of love to give. And so if, um, where, where can our audience find you? Ooh, probably on Twitter and yeah, and Substack. And you'll put the, mm-hmm. the links there. My Twitter is at Kelly underscore EdTech and kdavis.substack is my newsletter and the Lisbon one is lisbon.substack. So if you come to Lisbon, we're also on Meetup, 300 plus walkers walking three times a week. So come and walk with us too. Nice. It's, it, it looks very fun. I will put the links in the show note and Kelly's also offering coaching for, for families and students from around the world as we mentioned before. So if you're interested in working with Kelly in terms of educational technology, curriculum learning design or coaching for your kids, please go to Kelly's website and follow her on Twitter. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thanks, Andy. Talk to you soon.